This is Romans 12. This is uh, Romans 5, 12, right after where we left off last week. This is the word of the Lord. It has the power to make you alive. It has the power to grow you. Nothing else does, but this does have that power and ability. So listen carefully. Paul's continuing his argument. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law of Moses was given, but sin isn't charged against or held against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, even though there wasn't a law there to hold people accountable, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern or a type of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, or the free gift of grace isn't like Adam's trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and that gift, the gift that came by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin, because the judgment that followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift of grace followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for everybody, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life For all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespasses might increase. But where sin increased, get this, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every day when you get on a plane, you pretty much entrust your survival, your life, everything into the hands of a stranger. You're normally very separated from this pilot by age, by geography. You don't know them. But in that moment, the two or three hours of your flight, or however long your flight is, your lives and your stories are intimately tied up together. Because the consequences of his actions rather intimately affect you right, when you're in his plane, for better and for worse. Uh, If you have a skilled pilot who performs well under pressure, you land. If you don't, you don't. If you've heard about the miracle on the Hudson, back in 2009, uh, you remember this story, Captain Sully, as he's known now, because he's became a national hero uh, when this happened. But Captain Sully had a fully loaded probably 747, taking off from LaGuardia Airport, which is right on the edge of the Hudson River in Manhattan, New York, okay? Kind of urbanized area, not many fields. Uh, And Captain Sully is taking off his plane. He has very low altitude, very low speed. This is one of the most dangerous times of a plane ride when you're taking off, Mason tells me. And uh, (laughs) he hits a, a flock of geese. And the black box radio that they reviewed after, uh, all that they knew was they had double engine failure. 
And what had happened is these geese had gotten sucked into the engines and destroyed both of their engines. Now, when you have two engines, double engine failure means you're going to have a bad day. And when you're taking off and climbing that initial ascent, you don't have the altitude or the speed or the power to like circle back around and make another attempt to land at the airport. And so given the circumstances, this guy literally had seconds to act and the window of opportunity was flying by. Uh, he had to decide literally in about two or three seconds, where am I gonna put this thing down? Now again, he's in Manhattan, New York. Where would you put a plane down in Manhattan if you don't have the energy to get back to the airport? So this guy, uh, he is an older pilot. He's probably in his 60s when this emergency happens. He is an old Air Force. Uh, he's retired Air Force. He's been around the block before. He's seasoned. He's tested. He's skilled. He knows what he's doing. And all the other pilots, after they heard this story, said he did what almost nobody else could or would have done. Because in that split second, he looked down and he said, there's my runway. And it was the Hudson River. And if you've ever seen the Hudson River in New York City, the Hudson River is choppy. It opens out into the ocean a little ways after the city, and so it's pretty wavy. This was like January or February. There's snow and ice all along the edges of the river, and there's bridges everywhere because it's New York City. But he, he begins to turn the plane towards the Hudson, and within about two or three minutes of seeing a buzzer go off on the dashboard, double engine failure, within two or three minutes, that plane would be on the ground. Okay, we're talking split second. If you're not on the ball, everybody perishes. So he starts steering in towards the river, and this has to be a perfect landing. Uh, this is where you engineers are going to love the sermon for the next minute, so just eat it up. But the, the, the angle of the landing had to be just perfect. If it was too shallow, he would bury the nose in the water, or the engines would catch in the water, it would bite in, and it would sink the plane immediately. If his angle of landing was too high, the plane would disintegrate on impact, like a crash. Uh, if he accidentally tipped the right or the left wingtip just a few inches too low, the plane would somersault, and it would just catapult everything inside the plane and outside the plane. So we're talking like inches matter. And you know why they call it the miracle on the Hudson. He did what almost no other pilot could do. He landed the plane perfectly. And people who saw it said it just looked just like a plane landing on an asphalt runway. Glides right across the water. Uh, they put out the emergency rafts, and, and everybody evacuates, and, and ferries and water taxis from all over the city come and rescue these people. So here's the point. One man's action in that emergency affected everybody else on the plane. Those two or three hundred, or one or two hundred passengers weren't in the cockpit. They weren't making any decisions. They weren't doing anything. But his decision became their decision. The fruits, the benefits of his quick action became their benefits, right? And in that brief moment, all of them were kind of one with one another. They were united in this weird way that their stories merged and were one. No individuals in that moment. Those passengers were hidden in Captain Sully in that moment. They were kind of attached to him. And if he succeeded, they succeeded. If he lived, they lived. Okay? On the other side of this, though, the same principle holds true, and it's very tragic. Three years before the miracle on the Hudson happened uh, in Greece, uh, there was another 
set of pilots who took up another full Boeing 737. And before this flight left the airport, technicians had forgotten to turn on the, the automatic switch that automatically pressurizes the cabin as you gain altitude, which means you can breathe air, right? Air gets thinner the higher you go, less oxygen to breathe. They didn't set that switch on. And so as these pilots gain altitude, buzzers start going off everywhere. And they panic. They freak out. And they begin to go through all of these remedies that don't fix the problem. But you listen to the black box on that plane, and the pilots never realize the most obvious problem. There's a switch on the dashboard to pressurize the cabin. And even though someone else had made a mistake, they didn't realize all you had to do is push the switch up, and the problem is solved. But they panicked, they were distracted, they lost it. And so the plane is gaining altitude, and everybody on the plane blacks out. And that plane was called the ghost plane. It flew on for two hours on autopilot until it ran out of fuel. And so the opposite of the miracle on the Hudson also holds true. Two people's action, or one pilot's actions, his decision, his work, affected everybody else on the plane. Didn't matter that they weren't in the cockpit. Didn't matter that they weren't at the controls. They had, in a sense, entrusted their life to him. They had hidden themselves in that pilot and in that plane. And as the pilot goes, so go all the passengers. If he succeeds, they succeed. If he fails, they fail. Make sense? This is um, what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. Hang with me here. But Paul is saying that in a sense, humanity was born on a plane. And Adam was the pilot. Okay? And your fate, I realize it's 2014 and Adam was a guy thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, or longer. Uh, I realize the distance. I realize you didn't know him. I realize he didn't have a conversation with us before he acted, but Adam was the pilot on this plane called Humanity, and God had loaded the plane up with everybody. And your fate hinged on Adam and his decisions. Adam is Hebrew for man. Adamah means man. Adam's, Adam was a head, a representative of all of you. Just like President Obama is your representative. If he decides to go to war, you're at war as an American citizen. If he signs a peace treaty with someone, you're at peace with those people. If he raises taxes, you pay taxes. Because he is your representative. He, his decisions affect you. And Paul is saying there was a representative, your head, your pilot, what did he do with the plane? He had his, thank you, he had his, his crash moment. And that happened. And so Paul goes a step further of saying that, that humanity was born on a plane with Adam as the pilot. But it says, Adam, he falls, he turns from God, he, there's mutiny, self-exaltation, putting self-interest ahead of the interests of all those he represented. And so this plane is in a death spiral, and everybody on it is unconscious, unaware of what's happening. Okay? This is big stuff, right? Paul says, this is what you were born into. This is what Elijah was born into a month ago. This is the landscape. Um, and so this is kind of, this is the way life is uh, when we get here. This is what Paul means in verse 12 when he says, sin came into the world through one man, one pilot. His actions, his decisions, and death 
followed after that. Death came through sin, and so death spread to everybody, right? The actions of the pilot affected all the passengers. Adam's actions affected all of humanity. Death and sin spread to all men, he says in verse 12, because all sin. And so this is going to offend you at first and bless you in a few minutes. Let's go ahead and get the offensive part out of the way. When Adam sinned, he was guilty. And God says in in a way, in in a real way, you became guilty in that moment too. I get it. You're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. You're not 10,000 years old. But he says, because Adam was your pilot and you were on his plane, when he crashed the plane, you crashed. When he was judged for that, when he was condemned for that, because you were hidden in him, you were judged for that. You were condemned for that. Okay. Now, if you were born in America, you're not happy right now. Uh, those of you born in Mexico, those of our friends from Brazil, you are much more in line with reality than Americans are in this regard. Uh, the reason this is hard for us to stomach is because our minds are thinking, how in the world is God holding me responsible for something, a guy way back then that I've never met, that I didn't know, that I didn't ask? Why am I held responsible for his actions? Uh, and the reason why uh, this is offensive to us is because we have swallowed as the expression goes, hook, line, and sinker. This little fishing lure, we have bit it and swallowed it. This, this lie of individualism. Now, most other cultures on the planet are communal cultures. People realize you're connected to other people inescapably. But here, uh, and in England, and in Europe, uh, we have kind of for the last few decades bought this lie that you're an island, you're a rock. Um, You're the captain, the master of your own fate. You should only be held accountable for your own actions and own decisions. You're not connected to anybody else. Um, You kind of plan your own steps. You make your own life. This is the generation that invented the selfie and now is populated in jammed servers around the planet. We have pictures of us doing this. But it's it's individualism. And it, it it says, how dare God hold me accountable for the pilot's actions? I wasn't in the cockpit. I didn't get a stab at being in the garden with God and and having the chance to obey. But here's the thing. God reasons with you in that frustration. And here are some of the questions that he would put before us. Is how many of the life-altering, future-altering decisions and, and elements of your life did you have any say in at all? Did you choose which parents you'd be born to? Did you choose which country you'd be born in? Or which economic strata? Did you be poor or did you be rich? Did you choose to be a guy or a girl, short or tall? Did you choose to have musical ability or artistic ability or business acumen? Uh, Did you choose uh, any of these things? Did you choose the culture that you would be raised in that would shape you and make you who you are today? Did any of us choose any of Did we get a say in any of that? No. Which is kind of exposing the lie that I'm in control of my life. We're not in control of our life. Uh, And who we are today is largely the result of stuff we we were never at the controls for. We never had a say in. Uh, And this is part of uh, the reason why some folks not born in this country are able to hear this passage more 
more easily uh, than we are. Um, you know that you, if you think about it, though, you know that you're connected to people. This passage shows us we're not as in control as we think. It shows us that you're more connected to other people uh, than you think. For instance, some of you know enough about your family history to know that your grandfather or your grandmother uh, kind of repetitively gave into self-indulgence, chose to uh, <coughs> chose to float along with every fleeting desire and, and drink alcohol in those moments. And they became an addict. And then they had kids. And then your dad, from his earliest moment, had an addictive personality. And of course, adolescence comes. He takes beer. He gets addicted to alcohol. And you now feel that way too. An addictive personality, a proneness towards alcohol. And what terrifies you is probably your son and your daughter will experience the same thing. Not a decision you made first. A decision someone way up the family tree made that has trickled down and now predisposes you to certain things. Um, one of the Coppage family traits is a temper. I saw it in my grandfather. I see it in my dad. My dad listens to these sermons. I love you, dad. <laughs> We're broken and we need Jesus. <laughs> I see it in myself and a season in me. And the scary thing is, is I'm waiting for the day when I'll see it passed down to Elijah. And then and I think it will hit home with me how dark this is. Decisions people hundreds of years up our family tree have given into trickle down. Also for good stuff, a great-great-grandparent or maybe your mom or your dad was converted to Christianity and it's in a sense redeemed your family line now because you were raised in the gospel and you intend to raise your kids in the gospel. Here's my point. I won't beat a dead horse. Um, the point is other people's decisions and actions absolutely affect you. You can't get away from it. Big stuff like what I've just talked about, little stuff. Like your roommate stays up late, you don't get enough sleep, you do poorly on a test, it affects your GPA. Like little things always affect each other, we're connected to each other. And this passage says if you're going to hear the good news later, you have to hear this news now. Because this is how God has chosen to work with humanity is at a corporate group level through representatives like Adam, whose name means man, who's kind of like the chief man, and we're all these little men and women stuck inside of him. So whatever he does affects us. Decisions he makes affect us. The last thing I'll say about this is gets closer to home and may touch um, on questions you yourself have struggled with. Did anybody ever give you a Scantron maybe when you were five or six years old, and said, hey, here's a list of sin struggles. Which ones would you like to deal with? <laughs> and on there, it's like, hey, um, here's one about crippling body image issues and insecurities. And you're like, I would love to never be able to uh, walk into a room without comparing myself with everybody. I would love that life. <laughs> or you say, you know what? I really have admired the crippling anxieties I saw in my grandparents. Let's sign me up for that one. I would love to. Or, getting closer to home, um, I would love to have uh, kind of the, the sexual hyperdrive that I've seen in other family members. Or I would love to be attracted to people of my gender. That's a great, uh, that's a great life of whatever, isolation, <laughs> being pushed to the side. This is a place our culture gets scripture better than a lot of people in the church do, because the culture is screaming, Maybe, it's, maybe some of these things weren't 
conscious choices. And a lot of people in the church just scream louder and louder and louder and says, no, it has to be a choice. It's like we lose something precious if we admit that sin is bigger than you and your decisions. But the Bible would come alongside all of you in whatever your repetitive sin struggles are, whether I mentioned it a second ago or it remained unmentioned. The Bible comes alongside of you and it it admits at least this, that there is an element of suffering to your sin. In one sense, you are a victim of something much bigger than you and much badder than you. Paul says death invaded the earth. It rained. It wreaked havoc. It spread like the plague. And we were born into that. And, And so the Bible comes alongside of you in those struggles and it says there's some truth to this idea that you never felt like you knew a day without struggling with X, Y, or Z. Or it, 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 it gives some truth to the sensation that I don't remember ever choosing this. It just ever since I had a conscious memory, this has been a part of me. But here's where the Bible will save you and the culture will crash you. Because the culture can't see how human beings were designed to be. And so they say, if you never had a choice in these struggles... Uh, If you never had a moment where you filled out that bubble sheet and said, no, I'd love to have this, it says, well, then that's just the way you are. It's just the way God made you. You should embrace it. But, But if you have the Bible, if the Spirit of Jesus is telling you the truth, then you know when planes are flying upside down and going towards the ground, that's not normal. And so you can say, though, though this is bigger than me, though it's worse than just me, that doesn't make it good and natural. I don't ever remember a moment I didn't want to be selfish. I don't ever remember a moment where I chose to be selfish. But is the path of life for me to just embrace it because it feels natural and normal to me? Is the path of life, is the path of newness to say, well, this is just how God made me. Tough luck for you guys. You you hear this, right? The world is screaming this stuff. Just embrace it. Coast with it. Uh, But the Bible gives you an explanation for why you struggle with stuff you didn't ask for. And the Bible goes a little bit further than that, and it says we're responsible in the sense that I've already talked about because we are on the plane. Adam made some decisions that have ruined your life. And as you get older and older, you just bump into more of them and and you have more clarity about what they are. But there's also a sense where we have participated in and contributed to and aggravated Um, this inheritance that we've taken from Adam. In a sense, like if you've been dealt a bad hand of cards, you've also played it really poorly. If if Adam made decisions that made me be born in sin and selfishness, I have participated and gone along with and co-conspired in that selfishness. Right? So there's a double responsibility. I'm responsible. I was made a sinner in Adam, but I'm also made a sinner in Ben because I went along with it. I didn't push back. And so that's the first part of this passage. The second part is um, Paul doesn't spend as much time on because it's so obvious. So the first part is showing how sin has reigned, how sin has affected us. It explains why we will never have to teach Elijah how to steal other people's food in the nursery or how to hoard his toys or how to manipulate. Um, I remember the first time I worked in a church nursery. My campus minister had just preached on something like this, and uh, in, in college I worked in the church nursery on Sundays, and uh, 
this little boy, John Sam, the cutest little three-year-old you've ever seen. And uh, he is, all the kids are sitting at their little table. They're having snack time. It's Kool-Aid and goldfish. And I was watching them, and I saw little John Stanley look around for an adult, and he didn't think one saw him or was watching. And he, like, body-checked this girl out of her chair. <laughs> she was, like, on the floor screaming and crying, and he, like, biggest smile on his face, like, this is awesome, just slides her goldfish and fluid in front of him and proceeds to eat it. Uh, his parents didn't have, like, a seminar for the month before that, hey, here's how we steal girls' food and push them on the ground. <laughs> they will invest a lot of money and time throughout his life teaching him to share, to be righteous, to be good, right? You don't have to teach a human being how to be evil. We come out ready for that. You have to teach a human being how to be good, how to be polite, how to share. So that's the first part of this passage. Now, here's the big question right now. If we, as human beings, got into this mess by one man's mistakes, one man's actions. Paul is saying the only way we get out of it is through another man's action. The only way you take off from this world of misery and death and sin and guilt is if there's another pilot on another plane who's got a better track record who can get you somewhere new. And so that's why he's comparing old Adam, old man, new Adam. The new man, Jesus. Right? He's comparing the, the trespass and the gift of grace. Which I said a second ago, we don't have to spend as much time on because it is so obvious, but follow with me. Because this will feed your heart. Okay? Let me say this before we read this, actually. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday night. Already this week, I've had a conversation with several of you that when I was having this conversation in the past 48 hours with some of you, I've been thinking of myself, but here's how the conversation goes. You're a Christian. You feel so fragile in Jesus. You feel like the slightest wind, the next little screw-up, the next failure, and you're done. He's done with you, and you're gone. Your assurance is fragile. It's like hanging by a silk thread. Jesus feels weak to you. And like I said, when I was speaking to you in these conversations and you're being honest and admitting these things, I'm thinking, man, there's a lot of days out of the week I feel. Uh, maybe Jesus has a strong grip on me, but I feel like such a, such a weak grip on him. Am I going to let go? Uh, am I going to last in this? Or is he going to get tired of me and kind of throw in the towel? Last week's passage spoke into that. This week's passage speaks into that. And here's how Paul does it. So look down with me because this is bam, 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 bam. Paul just like unloads uh, on those kind of fears to encourage you, to take you by the hand, and to lift up your chin, and to say, look at Jesus. Verse 15, he says, the free gift. Um, I'm working on a different translation. Let me, let me borrow that again. Thanks, man. Uh, verse 15, he says, but the gift was not like the trespass. He's saying, this is not completely comparable, and we'll explain this in just a second. The gift was not like the trespass. Many died through Adam's trespass. How many? Much more will, be, uh, will have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So he's saying there's a gross disproportion from the damage sin has done and the renewal that Jesus is doing. He's saying it's not one-for-one, tit-for-tat, like 
Sin broke a little glass, so Jesus puts a little glass back together. Sin totaled a car, so Jesus comes and puts a car back together. He's saying the balance is way off here. He goes on, verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following a whole lifetime of sin, a whole humanity's full of sin, brought justification in life. He pushes on. If because of one man's trespass in verse 17, death reigned, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life? I'll keep going because Paul does, and he's just trying to prove a point, so hang with him. 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness through the cross leads to justification in life for all men. 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And here's the crescendo. Here's the chorus. Verse 20, so where sin increased, where sin increased, grace super increased. You can search all of Alexander the Great's letters. You can search all of the Greek writings in Greek mythology. You can search all of the Greek literature from any time in antiquity, and you will not find the word that Paul uses here, super abounds. He made up a word because his vocabulary couldn't capture what he was trying to say. And here's the gist of it all. If, Paul, if you said, Paul, please put all of that in a tweet, Paul would say, relax, relax. Jesus is your pilot, and he will land the plane safely. Relax. There is no need to feel fragile or pensive or kind of walking on eggshells. You are in an indestructible plane in Jesus. Captain Sully looks like a toddler at the controls compared to this Jesus. He's saying he will get you where he promises. He will hold on to you. He will land the plane. You be a passenger. Sit back. Relax. Rest. Jesus has done all of this work for you and given it to you. Now, what's the cost? He says it's free. Hopefully you picked up on that. This is where we begin to end. And I brought a very thick book to read a little bit to you. But I'm still pushing back at those of you who, like me, think that this salvation that God has given you, this grace that Jesus is bringing, this newness is kind of just restoring a mediocrity. That it's kind of just like you have a broken leg with sin and Jesus gives you a crutch so you can limp through life. Um, Jesus is doing astronomically more than that. But you don't believe it. You think he's just doing a mediocre thing in your life. You think he's doing a mediocre thing in the world. So your expectations are rock bottom. You don't expect much from him. You continue to groan in ways of like as if he's not coming. And I do too. I'm not condemning you for that. I'm saying this is an us thing, right? C.S. Lewis captures better what Jesus is up to. Uh, in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, uh, towards the end of a chapter called The Spell is Broken. And uh, bear with me. I don't think it's hard to pay attention to C.S. Lewis. But I'm going to read to you his example of what Jesus is doing in a world where sin and death reigned. What is this new pilot uh, what is he doing? Edmund is a little boy in this story, and he is describing what's happening in Narnia. Um, if you haven't read these books, talk to me afterwards, and I'll explain this. But 
he's looking around and he says, there seemed to be a curious noise all around the kids. But the noise of their driving and jolting and the dwarfs shouting at the reindeer prevented Edmund from hearing what it was. Until suddenly the sledge stuck so fast that it wouldn't go on at all. Sorry, the sled. When that happened, there was a moment's silence. And in that silence, Edmund could at, least, could at last listen to the other noise properly. It was a strange, sweet, rustling, chattering noise. And yet, not so strange, for he'd heard it before. If he could only remember where he'd heard it. Then all at once he did remember. It was the noise of running water. All around them, through, all around them, though out of sight, there were streams, chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even in the distance, roaring. And his heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why. When he, then he realized that the frost was over, this long winter. Lewis describes the reign of sin as a long winter with no spring and no Christmas. Just dark, cold, bitter, deathly. He said his heart leaped when he realized that the frost was over. And much nearer was the drip, drip, drip from the branches of all the trees. And then as he looked at one tree, he saw a great load of snow slide off of it for the first time he had ever been in Narnia. <coughs> he saw the green of a fir tree peek out. But he didn't have time to listen or watch any longer. And he says, uh, he goes on to say, the snow was really melting in earnest. He says, unless you've looked at a world of snow as long as Edmund had been looking at it, you would hardly be able to imagine what a relief it is to see those green patches peeking through. He says, every moment, patches of green grew bigger. Patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment, more and more trees shook off their snow. Then in the midst, from, uh, then in the mist, turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down onto the forest floor. And overhead, you could see blue sky for the first time. He goes on and concludes by saying this. He's continuing to describe what springtime bursting in and invading the winter looks like. He says, the trees began to come fully alive. The birds covered the trees. He says, the grass poked through. And Edmund observed, this is no mere thaw. This is spring. And he says, what are we to do? And he says to the witch, your winter has been destroyed. I tell you, it's been destroyed. This is Aslan's doing. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the big, roaring, powerful lion. He's Jesus. And Edmund is, for the first time, looking all around him. And this winter that he's always only known, winter and darkness and bitterness and death, and he looks around him, and weird things are slowly happening. Green comes back. Birds return. Sunlight pokes through. He sees a blue sky. And he says, this is no mere thaw. This is spring. Your winter is dying. God's agenda in the world is to bring springtime back, to invade the winter. He's not just dropping winter coats from an airplane so that you can be warm in the midst of a miserable death of winter. Jesus is bringing the spring. And if you're on his plane, if you are in Jesus, if you have looked to him by faith, and take him at his word of what he's able to do, then you and your life will begin to thaw, and springtime will come, sunshine will come, life will come. 
And it will happen that way more and more and more and more forever. Will you look to Jesus? Christian who had mediocre, pitiful expectations of what God is up to in your life and in the world. Will you reconsider what kind of Jesus you have? Where this pilot is taking you? Will hope return? Will confidence return? Will faith grow? We need him to make that come true in us, so let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would give us eyes for the springtime. We pray that we would realize that we have not just fallen in Adam, but we have been raised up to new and eternal life in Jesus. We thank you that we now bear the consequences not of Adam's decisions, but of Jesus' decisions. We reap the benefits of his heroic rescue. Because he lived, we live. Because he reigns, we reign. Because he is a victor, we are victorious. Because he is powerful, we are powerful. Jesus, would you help us to believe this? Would you sing to us through your word that we might wake up to the fall that is happening all around us? We ask this in your name. Amen.